0: All right, if you brought a Bible with you to church this morning, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're welcome to use a pew Bible that's in the pew ahead of you. You'll find our reading on page 903 of the pew Bible. If you're not used to reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 17, verse 1, and then I'm going to be reading down to verse, chapter 5, verse 5 in the same chapter. And uh, then I'll pray, and we'll get to work. should be 40 minutes or so. John chapter 17. This is God's Word. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. Father, glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. Father, help us to see that there is a God in heaven who hears, who cares. Father, teach us this morning from Your Word how to pray. Enable us to hear Your voice, to hear Your Son, to see Him to be convicted by your Holy Spirit, to turn away from our sin, and to trust in your Son. We ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The late, brilliant Christopher Hitchens, renowned author and atheist, often challenged his theistic opponents during debate, saying, Name one moral action performed by a believer that could not also be performed by a non-believer. A few offered reply, but the best I heard came from Dr. Frank Turek, who said, this morning in my hotel room, Christopher, I prayed for you and for your soul. If there's any universal distinguishing mark of a Christian It might be prayer. Christians, pray. You may have noticed that we attempt to devote a good bit of time in our worship gatherings to prayer. We pray after the call to worship. We often pray in the songs that Corey leads us in. We pray during the congregational prayer. We pray as a church together together. We pray after the call to worship. Uh, We pray before preaching of the Word. We pray after the preaching of the Word, and then we even pray at the end. We spend a good deal of time praying during our worship gatherings, and that is by design, because God's people have always been a praying people. There are 650 prayers listed in the Bible. The Apostle Paul mentions prayer 41 times in his writings, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, he fell during a prayer meeting. The first church led by the apostles, Luke says they devoted themselves to four things to the preaching of the word, to gathering together in fellowship, to breaking of bread together, and to the prayers. During persecution in the early church, when one of them, Peter, was thrown into jail, the Christians prayed. In Acts chapter 13, before sending out the first missionaries, the church at Antioch fasted and prayed. This is why it makes so much sense that the Apostle Paul would write to the Thessalonian church pray without ceasing. We could survey the whole Bible and Christian history, and we'd find many reasons why Christians have understood the importance of prayer. But perhaps the greatest reason Christians ought to pray is that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. The Bible records Jesus praying 25 times, and if ever there's a reason to pray, that's it. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. Well, as you know, Jesus did not just tell us to pray. He also taught us how to pray, and He modeled prayer for us. We can learn so much about prayer from Jesus' own prayer life, and that makes John chapter 17 a precious jewel. It's the Lord's own prayer. It's so precious in your Bible that scholars have often called it the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. It is an intimate glimpse into how Jesus prayed, and there's much to learn from this prayer. This truly is the Lord's prayer. Usually, when we say that phrase, the Lord's Prayer, we're referring to Matthew 6 and Luke 11, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that is a good prayer. That's a good model prayer. But here in John 17, we actually have the Lord's Prayer, his own prayer to his Father. And so, what we find here in this chapter is the Gospel writer John takes us right to the edge of that most holy place where no human dare go. And he lets us through a keyhole into a conversation between God the Son and God the Father that has been going on since before the ages began and continues to this very day. This truly is a holy place. And Lord willing, we'll spend three weeks in John 17. Today, we'll look at verse 1 through 5, Jesus praying about himself. Next week, we'll look at verses 6 through 19, where the Lord prays for the disciples. And then on June 3rd, Lord willing, we'll take verses 20 to 36 and see how Jesus prays for the whole church. Verses 1 to 5 today. Here's the big idea. If you have a worship guide that's on the backside, you can follow along as we go. Jesus prays that God would bring himself glory in Jesus' own redemptive work on the earth. Normally, I take a passage We work verse by verse through it, and I draw out three to four points or so. Today, we're only dealing with six verses, but I have eight points. So, eight things the Lord teaches us in this little prayer opening. So, we better get to work. Eight points. The first thing that the Lord teaches us about prayer is posture, the posture of prayer. You see this in verse one. When Jesus... Had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, John doesn't tell us much about Jesus' physical posture during prayer, except that we know that his eyes were open and he was looking to heaven. But we don't know whether he was standing or kneeling during this prayer. We don't know if his hands were open or whether they were closed. John doesn't tell us that. By the way, nowhere in the Bible that I can find does it tell us to close our hands in prayer. It's not wrong, it's just not in the Bible. Because prayer doesn't really depend on the physical posture. The physical posture of prayer is of little consequence. But the posture of your heart is of great consequence. The correct posture of prayer in your heart is that of dependence. A recognition of dependence. I've personally found it much easier to bow my knee than to bow my heart. But in prayer, we must bow our hearts. We must acknowledge our need before the Lord. And we must acknowledge that what we need cannot be found in the earth. Thus Jesus says, I look to the heavens. Nor can what we need be found in us. It must be found with God in heaven. Prayer is simply an expression of a man's attitude toward God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes prayer this way, as an offering up to God our desires for things agreeable to His will. Offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. It is an expression of our weakness and His strength. It is an expression of our dependence and His providence of our sinfulness and of His mercy. When Jesus prayed, John says He lifted up His eyes to heaven. Now, it helps to remember that here in the Gospel of John, the Lord is hours away from the agony of the cross. He will be arrested in the next chapter. And in just a few hours, every sin will be laid on him. And the wrath of God for sin will be war, will be waged on his body. And Jesus knows that he will endure unimaginable agony. And so he looks to his Father in heaven and prays. From the Lord's example, we can learn to do the same. That when we are facing difficulty... We must look to God for help. We must depend on Him to answer. Psalm 121 says, From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. See how contrary that is to modern notions? Often we're told in times of difficulty, look inside yourself, find your inner strength may even heur- have heard someone say at one point, God helps those who help themselves. Well, not only is that statement not in the Bible, it's un- entirely unbiblical. In truth, the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. In my experience, I found myself most unhelpful in times of trouble. Usually it's because I am the one who put myself in the need for that trouble. But have you ever noticed that it's only the emotional and spiritual issues which we recommend for self-healing? It's only when we have emotional issues that we say, look inside and find your inner strength. Your spiritual issue, look inside and and find your inner strength. How unhelpful would it be the next time you visited the doctor and she said to you something like, you have pneumonia, so I'm going to prescribe to you a new drug called believe in yourself. Well, that'd be silly. And so why would we think that that kind of silliness would work with emotional problems, certainly not spiritual problems? So the first thing Jesus teaches us about prayer is, to adopt a heart posture of dependence on God. Our problem is internal. Our solution, external. Pray to God. He's the only one who can help. second thing He teaches us, to pray to God as our Father. You see this in verse 1 as well. Jesus lifted up His eyes, and He said, Father. Prayer acknowledges our need. And it acknowledges that God cares about our need. It recognizes that God is a personal God. Jesus teaches us that God hears us and He cares. Dear Christian, your God is not aloof, nor is He distant, and nor is He deaf. My dear Pentecostal friends, God hears your prayers because He loves you, regardless of how loud you say them. God hears your prayers. Your loud prayers are no more effective. But according to Matthew 6, they may be less effective. God hears and God cares. Like any good father, God hears his children praying. Remember what the Lord taught us in Matthew 7. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? asking, knowing that God hears and God cares. As we learned last Lord's Day, that doesn't mean that God will give you everything you ask Him in prayer. As long as you pray it in Jesus' name, God was guaranteed to answer you. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, in 1 John five fourteen, John says that you can have confidence in prayer knowing that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. So, we must pray according to God's will. Which brings us to the third thing Jesus teaches us. In prayer, we must yield ourselves to God's will. We must yield ourselves to God's will. You see this in verse 1 as well. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. The hour has come. The hour that Jesus is referring to here is the hour of his cross. The hour of his greatest suffering. And so we we see here in in, in Jesus' prayer, he's yielding himself to his Father's will. You'll recall, if you know your Bible, Jesus' famous prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his cross, he said, Father, if you could take this cup from me, please do it, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's yielding himself to his Father's Will We even see this in Jesus' model prayer when he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's yielding to God's will to be done. But don't you find in your own prayers, as I do, that you often pray, my kingdom come, my will be done. How often do we find the very reason we go to prayer in the first place is because my will is not being done. And so I pray. How different this is from the Lord Jesus who told his disciples, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' constant posture is to yield himself to his Father's will. In fact, it was his food to do the Father's will sustained his very life. It's what he lived for. So I guess what we can say is that it's not wrong to live for food. As long as your food is the same food as Jesus' food doing the Father's will. Number four, God's glory is the goal of all things. God's glory is the goal of all things. Jesus again, Father, the hour has come, and listen to His prayer. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You I don't think I'm overstating this when I say that after the gospel, this is the single most important thing you need to know. God's glory in Christ is the goal of all that He does. God's glory in Christ is the goal of all that He does. It is His ultimate end. All things God does are working toward that end. That is why the vision statement of this church is, until Christ is all and in all. God's glory in Christ is the goal that all He does in this church and, friends, in your own life, in your own life. Perhaps more than anything else, that very notion will revolutionize your prayer life. For me, it revolutionized my entire life. I remember exactly where I was the first time the reality of this landed on me. I was sitting at my desk in the back room of a Radio Shack store in 2003. It was summertime, and Jonathan Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World, was open, and that old Puritan pastor was walking me through God's Word verse after verse after verse, showing me that God's ultimate end is to bring glory to Himself in His Son. It was, for me, as if Copernicus had rediscovered the sun was the center of the solar system. The center of gravity of my universe had been found, and I saw that was the orbit of my own life. God's glory in Christ became the center of all things and I began to see how all things that God did in my life, in my friend's life, in the church, was funneling toward that thing and that end. Creation, election, God's people Israel, the law, the cross, joy, peace, marriage, child rearing, church membership, church discipline, even suffering, all for the glory of God in Christ. February of that next year, while on an airplane, I resolved that I would finally listen to God and stop my rebellion and become a pastor and spend the rest of my life teaching people that God's glory was the end of all that He does. After you pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, this may be the most important prayer you pray. Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You will never find yourself more aligned with God's purpose in your life than when you share your master's prayer here in John 17, 1. Father, make much of yourself in Jesus through my life. And so I encourage you, Cornerstone, to pray this in one way or another every day of your life. When facing difficulty, acknowledge your need for God, yield yourself to His will, and pray that God would be glorified in Christ through your situation. So instead of praying for relief right away, first pray that God would help you patiently endure suffering and pain and struggle, and that God would be glorified by your dependence on Him, by your weakness, by your satisfaction in Him, apart from anything else, apart from an answer to the relief you need. God will always do what brings Him most glory. And I often don't know how that works out in my life or in my church. But here's what I do know. That I have a Father in heaven who loves me, who has sent His Son to redeem me from hell. And therefore, whatever delay He chooses in answering my prayer, it's not indifference. It is for His glory. It is for my good. Fifth. God is glorified in His grace. God is glorified in His grace. We see this in the word Jesus uses at the beginning of verse 2. Since. Since. God brings glory to Himself in this way. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So what, what... What Jesus is saying here is the manner in which God brings glory to Himself in the greatest way is through His Son, saving sinners by His grace. The greatest demonstration of God's glory was the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 is remarkable. Do you see all the giving going on in verse 2? God gave Jesus authority over all. God gave His people to Jesus, and Jesus gives those people eternal life. Three things being given there. This is exactly what the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Paul is saying the exact same thing as Jesus, that God gave his people to Christ, and Christ gave those people eternal life, all by grace. There's no mention in either of these passages of anything that you and I have done at all in that choosing. The only thing you and I did probably was need grace. God did this on His own accord for His own reasons, to demonstrate His own glorious grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, understand you are among this number, If you are trusting in Jesus to save you, Jesus is talking to His Father about you. Before the ages began, before you drew your first breath, God showed His love for you in that He gave His Son for you, and His Son granted you eternal life. This is your story. A non-Christian friend, if you're not following Jesus... I'm glad that you came to church today, because it could be that God is right now drawing you to Jesus Christ. And it could be that today you recognize your own rebellion against God and acknowledge that you need a savior. You need to be saved from the penalties of your own sin. And it could be that today if you turn from that sin and repent and trust in Jesus, He will grant you eternal life. So if you're thinking that God might be drawing you to Jesus today, I would encourage you to take one of these people here by the hand. These are my friends, and I know that they would be happy to introduce you to a life of having your sins forgiven and walk in the joy and newness of life with Christ. Sixth thing Jesus' prayer teaches us. Eternal life comes from knowing the one true God. Eternal life comes from knowing God. We see this in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life comes one way, by knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ who reveals Him. Eternal life comes one way, knowing the true God and Jesus Christ who reveals Him. Notice, eternal life does not come by knowing about God, but by knowing Him. It's one thing to know about someone, but you know it is a whole nother thing to know them. Historians may know a lot about George Washington, but no one knows him like like Martha Washington. That's a whole different kind of knowing, and that's the kind of knowing that Jesus means here. It's a close, intimate, near knowing, a personal knowing, and that's the kind of knowing that is eternal life. The Bible tells us the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. If you remember back from chapter 14, the Apostle Philip came to Jesus and said, Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Do you remember what Jesus said? Philip, how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The only way to know God the Father is to know God the Son as He has revealed Him. Notice Jesus says there is only one true God. You have to know the one true God, which implies in this very sentence that there are false gods. There's the one true God, and by implication, there are false gods. In my interactions with folks, I find that many many Americans believe in God. But do they believe in the one true God as revealed by Jesus Christ? I regularly find that those who claim to believe in God live in a way inconsistent with the Scripture. And they don't see that as a problem. Which means the sad reality is they're probably not Christians at all. 1 John 2.4 says it this way. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep His commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Once a person comes to know the excellencies of Christ, he will want to honor Christ with all of his life. With God's help, he'll be broken over his sin. He'll run from it. He'll resist temptation and seek repentance and to seek to live according to God's purposes for his life. He'll seek to join a church, and He'll seek to help others along the way. Plenty of folks say that they love God, and yet they continue to live in the very sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Which tells me they probably don't really love God at all. They love a false God. One of their own making. A God who's much more okay with their lifestyle. a One that is more tolerant and accepting of their sin. But the trouble is that false God, because He's a God of, it, of their own making, doesn't have any more power than they do, which means that false God cannot give them eternal life. Seventh thing Jesus teaches us, eternal life is possible through the cross. Eternal life is possible Through the finished work of the cross. We see this in verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The last words Jesus uttered on the cross before he died were three. It is finished. It is finished. The work that his father had sent him to accomplish was finished on the cross. The barrier between God and His people had been torn down. The Gospels record that the the curtain that separated God's people from God's presence in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom showing that this was a work of God Himself top to bottom making the way to God's presence open. The way to God's presence paved by Jesus' own blood. God's people, once covered in sin, are now covered in the blood of Christ. His death gave hell-deserving sinners like us a seat at God's banqueting table. I hope this truth has been made plain to you so that you know that all that you need to be made right with God is already been accomplished for you. It is finished, it is complete, the work is done, the gap is closed. We ought to stare at that word accomplished in verse four. Christ has accomplished the work. It's past tense. He's died. Once for all, Jesus did this for you. My dear Christian brother and sister, very next time that you find yourself giving into the temptation of sin and wallowing in that moment, remember that every drop of Jesus' blood that was necessary to cover that sin and to remove it has already been spilt on your behalf. There's no more work that needs to be done. You don't need to climb up on the cross for yourself. You don't need to punish yourself. You need only to come to the Lord and say, Father, I have sinned. Please forgive me, a wretched sinner that I am. And the Bible promises you That when you come to the Lord confessing your sins, acknowledging your need and dependence on God's mercy, He is faithful when you aren't. He is just when you weren't to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Eighth and final thing Jesus teaches us. Jesus returns to glory That he shared with the Father. Jesus returns to glory that he shared with his Father. This is in verse 5. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, what we're reading here, the prayer that we're reading here, are not the words of a mere man. These are the words of God in flesh. These are the words of one who has always been, who will always be. These are the words of Almighty God, which means they are trustworthy, they are true, they are unbreakable, and they are life giving words. John has been showing this in his gospel since the very opening lines. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word, has existed from all time. He is uncreated. In fact, the Bible says all things that were created were created by Him. This is John 1 verse 3. All things were made through. Through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made all things. Jesus Christ is co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father who has existed forever sharing the same glory as God the Father has now. Jesus always had. Hebrews 1.3 He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the radiance of God's glory. He shares the same glory. He shines the same glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. Thus, anything you need to know about who God is, what God says, what God thinks, you look only to Christ and you find all of it there the eternal Son of God, who proceeded from the Father, wrapped Himself in human flesh. He lived the life you should have lived and haven't. He died the death you ought to have died and haven't. And because of that, He offers Himself to save you from your sins. All for the glory of God. Three days after the cross, Jesus was raised from the grave. And later, he ascended into the Father, into the very presence of the Father, where he sits today. Seated at the right hand of the Father, because he's seated because there's no more work to be done. So he has taken his throne in heaven. And the Bible says Jesus is there at this very moment interceding, continuing to pray, as it were, what He prayed for you in John 17, interceding to His Father on your behalf. There He stands victorious, building His church, praying for His people. Well, here we wait on earth, empowered by His Spirit, to continue doing what he began, bringing glory to God the Father through God the Son by making disciples, building his church. We do this every day. We seek to do it every tomorrow until the Lord calls us home or until the Lord returns in glory. Christians know that one day the Lord Jesus will return to earth. And when he does, he'll bring heaven with him. And he'll gather his elect from all the corners of the globe. And they'll all be gathered to himself. What a day that will be. In the meantime, we wait. And we pray. As all the saints have prayed across the centuries. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Please stand for the prayer of confession. As I said, we pray a lot on Sunday mornings, acknowledging our need, our dependence on Him. No more do we need the Lord than with this issue of sin and so we take time at the end of our service to pray a prayer of confession as a group together the lord has given us his word he's exposed our hearts and so now we go to him in prayer would you join with me in praying to the lord god you are great you are our father in heaven your name is holy and we thank you for making a way for us, for sinners like us, to have your ear. Lord, what a wonder it is that the Almighty God, in celestial glory, and His Son, who upholds the universe by the word of His power, hears us. In your hearing, Father, Father, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Lord, would you make much of your son in our lives? Would you make much of him in our families? Would you make much of him in our church and through us, our loved ones, our city, our world? Lord Jesus, deserves the praise of every creature in heaven and under heaven. Would you make it so? We acknowledge our need before you. How often we have trusted in ourselves. How often we have created our own gods to get our own way. And in so doing, we have denied rightful worship of the one true God. Would you help us to see the idols of our heart, the false images we worship? Would you help us to see them and repent of this idolatry? Father, we ask that you would grant us grace to yield our will to your Son's will. For we are so often strong-willed, stiff-necked, How arrogant our sin has made us. Please forgive us for thinking that our will is in some ways better than yours. Lord, have mercy on us, your people. As we so often seek our own glory, to make much of our own reputation. Miserable creatures are we to think that we deserve anything from you. And what mercy you have shown to us that you would even take thought of sinners like us, let alone send your Son to die for us. Would you cause us to see the excellencies of Christ? Would you cause us to know the joy of living for His glory? And would you enable us to think more about Christ than we do about anything, even our own comfort? finally, Lord, save the lost among us. Those who have joined us this morning, open their eyes. Would you enable them to see their need for you and to turn to you for mercy? Bring them to repentance. And Lord, would you save their souls? We ask these things of you not because we are worthy to ask them, but because Jesus is. So for Jesus' sake, and in Jesus' name we pray.